Welcome back to The Good, The Bad, and The Neutral, where we have a guest star. Da, 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 da. Hey, how you doing? How you doing? Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Neutral, uh, the show where we discuss and debate the D&D alignments of fictional characters. My name's Jack. I'm Avery, and we're We're Not Doing Batman Productions. We have a special show for you today. A good friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Professor Scott Pape from DePaul University, he's got a lot of expertise on the subject. I'll let him introduce himself for you guys. Take it away. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Scott Pape. Uh, I'm a professor at DePaul University, um, and I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for approximately 40 years and have spent uh, a good deal of time over the course of those years uh, trying to figure out my own alignment. So I'm looking forward to thinking through the alignments of some of the people we'll be talking about today. That's actually a pretty good point. We've just talked on this show before about our alignments. What do you think your alignment is? You know, I always thought that I was neutral good, and I'm sort of kind of kind of locked into a self-perception of myself as neutral good. But whenever I take one of those like online alignment quizzes, uh, it tells me I'm lawful good. Uh, and so I figure if I'm using like second edition Dungeons and Dragons rules, then I think I'm kind of neutral good uh, with lawful tendencies. That makes sense. Um, so just for new listeners and also for Professor Paith, who has not listened to the podcast yet, <laughs> we're going to give just a quick overview of how this works. So uh, normally we roll a die to determine what character we're using, but since we have a guest, we've actually determined them ahead of time. This is still the first time we're having the conversation. We're going to give some brief background on the character. Then one of us is going to give our theory about what their alignment is. Then another person is going to give their theory. And then our third and final person is going to give their theory. And we'll try to mix it up a little bit about who goes first. And then we're going to talk about it. And ideally we end up somewhere in agreement. Usually. Um, So our first character on the list is Bilbo Baggins from The Hobbit. I have... uh, I have read the book. I saw the first two movies. I don't consider them canon. Do you want to talk about who he is? Sure, I'll give some background. So Bilbo Baggins is the main protagonist of The Hobbit, which is a book written by J.R.R. Tolkien for his children. It is. It serves as a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, and it follows the story of Bilbo Baggins, who is a hobbit who lives in the Shire, and he is very much not into the adventure idea. Like, he just wants to sit in his house and drink his tea, and then a bunch of dwarves show up at his door, tell him to go on an adventure. He sort of goes along on the adventure uh, and uses his quick wit and cleverness for the and uh, for the most part to help the dwarves on their journey, coming to really enjoy his adventure, and then coming home and relaxing. Is there anything that else that needs to be known here? Uh... I mean, that's, that's, that's the basics. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is an interesting question because Bilbo Baggins is definitely the archetypal hero before there was a hero's journey. You know, uh, if, if Joseph Campbell could impose the hero's journey onto any one character, it probably would be Bilbo Baggins. He goes through a lot of the important stages and even the sub stages of the hero's journey. That being said, I wouldn't call him an archetypal hero at all because of just how hesitant he seems to get into the, into the, the, the thick of things. And that is, of course, part of the hero's journey. The The refusal of the call is one of the most important parts of, of the story, but he goes kind of above and beyond with the refusal of the call. He's kind of hesitant to get involved in things all the way up until 
almost under the mountain, really. All that set aside, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Bilbo Baggins is true neutral. And here's my reasoning. Now, we've talked a little bit before about how your intentions don't really factor into, or whether, rather, your intentions factor into uh, your alignment in, in the process. Uh, and I, of course, believe that intention is irrelevant compared to what your actual actions are. Bilbo's actions, time and time again, show that he is really only taking part in this quest for kind of as a favor to his friend Gandalf. And it's, it's very much a sort of, I am doing this because someone important to me has asked me to do it, almost up until the very end of the story, where he kind of finds his courage and becomes a part of something bigger than him, uh, and then goes home. And I think that is kind of a, a good example of how a, a true neutral hero can still be part of a uh, courageous adventuring party. Uh, well, I was actually leaning toward uh, true neutral as well, but I mean, I think with a lot of these things, you know, of course you see the character go on a journey, but just for discussion's sake, you know, uh, let me let me stake out the position that at least initially Bilbo's alignment is lawful neutral uh, in the sense that he kind of embodies the sort of kind of staid middle-class um, squire of sort of kind of Tolkien's English imagination, right? And so in that sense, he's genial. He's not hostile to anybody, but he's very much sort of determined that everything be in its place and that nothing, you know, that nothing disrupt the order that he's come accustomed. So in that sense, very much uh, in, you know, with the lawful element there, but also really not committed to any particular great cause. So I'm actually going to take a third different position and say that Bilbo is neutral good. And the reason I say this is largely because of where he ends up sort of near like right before the battle of five armies where they're about to go in and get a uh, deal with smog and all the dwarves kind of step back and we have that like weirdly kind of racist moment of the dwarf like tolkien saying that dwarves are not heroes but then Bilbo still kind of moves forward and does this. And yeah, he went on the adventure as a favor to his friend Gandalf, but Gandalf's not there at that point. He Bilbo's doing this because he wants to see this through. He wants to do this. And like, that's, he's helping these dwarves who he, it's just the right thing to do in his head. And then I want to dip into the Lord of the Rings for a moment and briefly consider the moment where Bilbo gives up the ring to Gandalf. Off because I think if you're a neutral aligned person and you're being sort of you're interacting with something that like compels you and feeds on your self-interest then it's got to be a lot harder for you to give it up but ultimately Bilbo is able to do it kind of for the greater good so that's my position I'm not married to it but that's we've got three sort of thoughts now I think I think I have a good rebuttal to yours Tell me. so first off you have to ask, ask whether you subscribe to the idea that Tolkien knew the ring was going to be talking to Bilbo when he picked it up in the hobbit because at the time it was just a magic ring uh it wasn't anything special or unique or, or godlike or whatever um you also have to ask and again I, I think it boils down to whether his intention Intentions were are worth uh, uh, debating or not, whether it's just his actions. Because I mean, I consider myself at least moderately good aligned, and if I had a, a talking ring that was whispering secrets to me, that was trying to get me to hold on to it for any reason uh, whatsoever, no matter how attached to the thing I was, giving it up would be at least partially relief because it wouldn't be whispering to me anymore. I think that act can be described at least in a little sense as a selfish act because it's not his problem anymore. 
it's clearly a bigger thing than he's capable of dealing with. And he's dealt with a lot so far. He's an old man by that point. He doesn't have the energy to deal with an evil talking ring. And then I also want to bring up a point that Scott made about how um, Bilbo's life is very much a stable, lawful part of the world. Um, because I do think that uh, begs the question of whether his intentions were uh, are, are worth putting into his alignment as well. Because once again, you have to ask yourself, does my obsession with order and justice and, and, and you know, the, the peace of my, my casual little life come into, does that affect my decision-making process to such an extent that it is more important than the decisions themselves? So I actually think, again, I think that one of the, I'm going to keep coming back to this point throughout our discussion, which is that I think for a lot of the characters we'll be talking about, it really has to do with the question of uh, a development of their moral outlook over the course of the narrative. So I think that with Bilbo, although I still think he would start out as lawful neutral, I think that uh, as he develops throughout the story, I think by the time you get to um, the, uh, by the time you get to Mirkwood, um, I think he's developed more of sort of more into a lawful good character from that point so moving from lawful neutral to lawful good in sort of a sensibility him to kind of stand up for his friends as i see bilbo's progression from a moral perspective he moves from a lawful neutral where he's just sort of kind of set in his ways and doesn't want anything anything to disturb him to by the time you get to mirkwood he's you know he's developing an understanding of himself as being uh, responsible for for other people's well-being um, and standing up for a sort of a set of moral standards. Um, and then by the time you get to the Battle of Five Armies, I think he has again progressed uh, more in the direction of neutral good as he comes to realize that the moral standards, the sort of lawful dimension, can't be 100% useful. That sometimes you have to break the rules and go against your friends in order to do the right thing. So when he takes the Arkenstone and he brings it to the elves in order to give the elves the negotiating power, you know, for the purposes of... Of, of preventing the war, right? He's he's making a decision that on the one hand seems to be a betrayal of his friends, but on the other hand is a commitment, as, as you put it, Avery, to a larger good. So in that sense, he moves, as I read it, from, from lawful neutral through lawful good and then ends on neutral good by the end of the story. Uh, we've actually talked a little bit in the past, not extensively, but about the idea that a character's growth can be a major part of the story, that going from one alignment to another is sometimes the most interesting part of their journey. But we haven't actually settled yet on a character that we agree goes through enough development to uh, firmly put them from one alignment to another. So I think uh, we have to agree on this one that Bilbo's just too complex to fit into one alignment for the entirety of the story. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that uh, Professor Paith, you really helped to track through that from lawful neutral to lawful good over to neutral good ultimately. Yeah. Um, so Bilbo Baggins, complicated. <laughs> complicated. Complicated. Thankfully, the next character we're going to talk about is significantly less complicated. Uh, so our next character on the list here uh, is one of my absolute favorites. I'm really excited about this one. This is 
Calvin from the Calvin and Hobbes comic strips. Um, and I'm going to go over a little bit of the history of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes is a comic strip by Bill Watterson. Uh, it ran for a number of years between, I want to say the late 80s to the early 2000s. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, it was uh, very famous for its dry wit uh, and its ability to cover a lot of different topics and sometimes controversial topics uh, in the framing device of a six-year-old terrible child. He is an absolute menace to his family and friends. Uh, he's constantly just uh, throwing goo at people and uh, harassing his dad with uh, weird snowmen. Uh, it's very much what you would expect a six-year-old boy in the late 80s, early 90s to be like. Um, but the kind of uh, extraneous detail that makes the character interesting to talk about is Hobbes, Calvin's quote-unquote pet tiger, who is actually a stuffed animal that either has an amount of sentience and talks to Calvin, or that Calvin is projecting an amount of, of his own personality onto. And both of those are valid arguments for the character, um, to such an extent that Watterson actually named the characters with the intent of, of that uh, question being unsolvable. Because Calvin himself is named after John Calvin, the religious figure, uh, and Hobbes is named after Thomas Hobbes, and they're supposed to be like Calvin is order and Hobbes is chaos, except they're both very much both subjects. Uh, so I'm going to let Avery take this one. What do you think Al uh, Calvin's alignment is? So I'm going to take the uh, the probably obvious point here and say that Calvin is chaotic neutral. And the reason, I, I think it's pretty easy to uh, understand Calvin as chaotic because A, he's six. All six-year-olds are chaotic. It's true. It's just part of who they are. Uh, but also, he clearly has a major issue with authority. He opposes just about every attempt to get him to do anything, uh, especially with regards to school. Um, but the reason I say neutral is in part due to Calvin's imagination. Calvin regularly imagines himself both as the hero and as a villain. And as a victim. Yeah, Calvin imagines himself as all over the spectrum in terms of good, evil, whatever, but he's always in opposition to authority. Like, I keep thinking about how Spaceman Spiff, his Spaceman alter ego, who's like a hero of space, uh, he goes to space, if you weren't sure. Yeah. Uh, but he, like... At one point, he, like, imagines Spiff getting captured and interrogated, and it's just because he's in school. And he doesn't want to answer test questions. He often approaches issues with this strange, lateral, outside-the-box method of thought. And so I think chaos, like, the chaotic part is, at least in my mind, pretty obvious. But I don't think he considers himself really to either be heroic or villainous. I think he's a little bit of both. And I think that... Hobbes, like his relationship with Hobbes sort of sets that up too because they both occasionally like rib and sometimes are really cruel to each other and are also like very best friends and that sort of creates both this like benevolent and malevolent relationship with the two characters uh, uh yeah yeah so i i actually i think chaotic neutral is probably right as i was thinking about this it's the you know i, I was thinking about it in terms of you know from a freudian perspective calvin sort of in the way that he's, his self-presentation is that of the sort of the Freudian id. Uh, and to a degree, Hobbes maybe represents this sort of the imposition of the superego on him as he, uh, as he, you know, attempts to sort of kind of leaven Calvin's sort of complete ego sense 
tantric uh, attitude with you know some some wisdom and some some caution and so so if you take calvin and hobbes to be in some sense sort of distinct figures then calvin is definitely sort of kind of chaotic neutral and kind of the classic sort of sense of just not grounded in morality but only grounded in his own sort of immediate desire right and and that's the id conception but if you take hobbes as being uh as being a dimension of calvin's um, ego, uh, then he does sort of represent that move toward uh, toward order and morality for Calvin. So perhaps combined, you see sort of with Hobbes, you see the you know the potential for growth in Calvin uh, to be a more morally aware and uh, sensitive human being. I'd like to expand on that actually, um, because I was going to argue that if they are one composite character and not two that they are almost certainly chaotic good. Um, Hobbes has acted as Calvin's conscience in a number of ways over uh, the course of the, the, uh, the comic strip. But also, uh, Hobbes is a representation of Calvin's desire to grow up because Hobbes is older and more adult than Calvin is. Uh, and I'll give you an interesting example. Hobbes is interested in girls and Calvin is not. And I think that's uh, a, good, a good point uh, towards Calvin, assuming they're the same composite character, towards Calvin actually having the ability to express a moral dimension to himself uh, just because it almost seems like he's aware of his moral dimension and shunting it into another person so that he doesn't have to deal with it. Uh, and that happens a lot when it comes to things like Calvin dealing with his mom and Calvin dealing with homework. And uh, like Hobbes will constantly be the, the straight man to Calvin's silliness, but in doing so kind of defines himself, Hobbes himself, as Calvin's conscience in a sense. Uh, and I think that if Calvin has a conscience and is listening to it, whether or not he's actively choosing to, to, to act on his conscience, its presence kind of demands that he is aware of and, and respects his, his own moral alignment. And I, I would think if they are the same character, that they are chaotic good. Otherwise, if Cobbs is separate, I would agree Calvin is chaotic neutral. See, I don't agree with you in terms of whether or not he'd be chaotic good. And I think it's because it goes against your own philosophy where intent doesn't matter. Mm. Ultimately, whether or not Cobbs is there to talk to Calvin about his decisions, the decisions he makes are always settled nicely in that chaotic neutral alignment. He will listen to Hobbes when he wants to, mm. not when he doesn't. And we've talked about, we talked about with Uncle Aaron that neutrality is in part the failure to reach either good or evil. And the fact that Calvin makes decisions kind of depending on what he feels like, which sometimes leads to really good things and sometimes leads to really bad things, means that he might be able to become chaotic good in the future as he grows older. But right now, I don't think he's there. I'm inclined to agree with Avery there. And, and the reason why it's going to, I think because most of the time, the way that it shakes out is that Hobbes winds up doing what Calvin wants to do. Mm. Um, and so, you know, so even though he's there representing the moral dimension, that moral dimension is still subordinated to sort of the immediacy of Calvin's desire. Right. So, you know, to me, the classic case is, you know, there's a reason why they call it Calvin Ball. Right. I mean, and Calvin Ball is a game of pure chaos where the rules change uh, arbitrarily at any moment in both Calvin and Hobbes play play games of Calvin Ball with uh, with uh, complete enthusiasm. All right. I think we've settled on it then. Calvin is chaotic neutral. neutral. 
For our last one, we're going to do something just a little bit different in that this final character is one that was suggested by Professor Paith that Jack and I admittedly don't know a lot about. So ultimately, we're going to be sort of flying blind, not totally blind. I know a little bit about this character by osmosis. And also I asked my partner who has watched the show. We did some research. A little. But ultimately, Professor Paith is going to be the one who gives us the verdict on this character. All right. So we're talking about Geralt of Rivia from the Witcher series. Specifically the television series. Yes. Because that's the one that we're using for reference. Yes. Okay. Scott, if you would tell us a little bit about the character. Sure. Well, uh, so Geralt of Rivia is a character from the Witcher series, and I'm not going to attempt to uh, to pronounce the name of the author uh, because I'm guaranteed to butcher it. Um, but it is actually, it's sort of a fascinating series because it comes out of Poland and it's very much kind of grounded in sort of Polish culture and Polish lore. Uh, I want to say the author's name is Sapkowski, but um, but he developed this character of the Witcher. Uh, with sort of that very specific sort of cultural context in mind. And so the so the idea of a witcher is that he is a, a monster hunter for hire. Uh, and so he goes around from town to town uh, and he'll kill any monsters that you might uh, have uh, lurking around the town, but he almost always requires some kind of payment. Uh, and there's a sort of a larger meta story that goes along with this related to sort of a war in this fantasy country uh, between um, a kingdom of Nilfgaard um, and uh, other kingdoms. And Nilfgaard is this kind of colonial power that's taken over and everything. And it results in some sort of complicated um, complicated plot developments involving a, a princess that's on the run and a sorcerer uh, whose, whose name in the novel and the TV series is Yennefer, uh, who, uh, whose fate intersects with Geralt over the course of, uh, of their adventure. And so for me, as I'm reading the novels and watching the TV series, which is now on Netflix, uh, one of the things that leaps out at me is the idea that sort of Geralt's default alignment uh, is very much chaotic neutral, right? The idea of being a witcher um, itself implies the idea that you're not just running around like a knight errant defending, you know, innocent people from monsters, but you show up where and when you're paid uh, and you do a job, not because it's good, but because somebody's giving you money to do it. So in a lot of ways, that, 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 is sort of a quintessentially chaotic neutral position to take. That's really interesting to me because, so my partner has watched the show and I have not. Uh, so while we were driving today, I asked her what uh, Geralt was like. And she said that fundamentally his two major characteristics are that he is very grumpy and he is very kind. That he, and also that he's a dweeb who has conversations with this horse. So that's my knowledge of Geralt. But what I think is interesting is that she chose to emphasize that kindness that uh, talked about this moment in the first episode with a little girl when she's like, can I come with you? And he's like, no. And she's like, what's your horse's name? And then he tells her what the horse's name is and they have a conversation. And I feel like from what I know about Geralt, I think he, he appears to be, I think chaotic is correct, but he appears to be good aligned against his better judgment. My partner mentioned that Geralt seems to be afraid of being abandoned, uh, which is has to do with his mother leaving him, I'm told. Again, this is all secondhand, but 
that causes him to reject a lot of his care for other human beings and sort of embrace that I'm here, I'm doing a job, I'm getting paid. But I think from what I can tell about Geralt, he tends to make very kind decisions when he is, when his back against is against the wall. And for me, that's sort of what reveals an alignment is what you do when your back is against the wall. Um, I don't know a lot about this character. From the descriptions the two of you have given him, he sounds to me like either a, I, I can't see him as chaotic. I feel that to be chaotic requires more than just a flagrant disregard of the law. You have to actively be opposed to the concept of structure and law. Uh, and he feels like not the kind of character, he feels more like the kind of character who is disregarding of rules and and regulations, but not because they're rules and regulations. Like, he's not going to go out of his way. He won't break a law unless he absolutely has to, uh, just because that's the structure of the world he's been put in. He's not the kind of person who would go out of his way to, to uh, you know, break a law just because it's in his way. He will try to find a uh, an alternate route uh, if he can, if one exists. Um, so I would put him as either true neutral or neutral good. And one of the things we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes is what a character, what happens when a good character is damaged uh, or, or, or has their moral decisions taken away from them to such an extent that they can no longer, through, through trauma primarily, they can no longer actively choose to make the right choice. So I would say that he's either true neutral or a neutral good character who cannot make good decisions out of trauma. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that you both make really good points. And I think that one of the things that the question of kindness is an, an interesting one, because I think that, you're, uh, that your partner is right, that there are a lot of times when going against his better judgment, Geralt goes ahead and does the right thing, even when it's not. So, so sort of his, like said, his default alignment is you know, chaotic neutral. I do this for my own self-interest. I do this for the money. But the story continually come back to this idea of him overcoming that sort of default alignment for the sake of helping people. So there's a story in one of the one of in the first novel, well, which is basically a series of short stories, which got made into an episode of the TV series, where he is caught in the middle of a standoff between sort of the villain and and this wizard. And in order to resolve the conflict, the the villain is going to slaughter everyone in the town. And the town's mayor instructs Geralt, you know, not to do anything, you know, to let things take their course, but he can't bring himself to do that. And so he goes in and he confronts the bad guys, but he slaughters them so brutally that he actually turns the townspeople against it, right? So even though he does the right thing and he protects the townspeople from what was going to be a massacre, he winds up being vilified because of it. So that would be an example of sort of it's against his self-interest. Um, it's solely for the sake of helping others. He's not being compensated for it, um, but he nevertheless, uh, but he nevertheless does the right thing. It sounds to me like he's trying to be neutral, but ends up being good. Yeah, I mean, I say all the time against his better judgment, he's drawn into situations where you know he's he's told or he tells himself, "I'm just here for the money. I'm just here for the payday. I'm just here to kill monsters." And the outcome is that he winds up on the right moral side of the question. Okay, so we have him 
kind of firmly up in the good area, but I'm curious about uh, what you think about Jack's point about how, like, he, he doesn't appear to be directly opposing or disagreeing with the law. He just, like, is kind of working his way around it. Like, uh, what, where, why would you put him in chaotic? Is there something we're missing? So, I guess I think of him a little bit like, I'm, I'm blank on the name of the character, but it's a character from The Wire, um, who uh, sort of is kind of this freelance outlaw. Uh, who at one point, you know, he kind of coins this phrase, he says, you know, a man's got to have a code, right? And and I think that the question is, is the code your own personal code or is the code sort of society's code? And on the one hand, Geralt's code is grounded in his identity as a witcher. Uh, and so from that point of view, he definitely has a code. Um, although again, the code emphasizes this idea of neutrality with respect to uh, moral, moral and political conflicts. But his code code is not identical to society's code. One of the reasons why he's outcast in society and why witchers generally are outcast in society is because they're not actually generally subject to or see themselves as subject to the larger set of social laws that they participate in. They're really subject only to their own code of honor. One of the very first lines, it was great for me reading it, one of the very first lines of one of the very first Witcher stories is he's trying to describe why he's taking a particular course of action and uh, and, he, and he uses the phrase professional ethics. Uh, and I'm like, well, that's it's, this is a professional ethics. This is the code of my guild, right? It's the same thing as, you know, a lawyer saying, you know, I'm not going to, my I know my client's guilty, but I can't tell anybody because that would be a violation of professional ethics. That's what the that's what the, the, the ethical rules of my guild require, regardless of a larger moral framework in which it, it belongs. That's a very well put point. Uh, so I think we've uh, settled on chaotic good then? Yeah, I think that what you mentioned, Scott, about being outcast from society is the thing that firmly settles him into chaotic. So, Gerald of Rivia? Chaotic good. Chaotic good. All right. Uh, so, Dr. Paith, we're, uh, Professor Paith, we're going to be recording another episode in just a minute, but do you have any closing thoughts about this one? Anything, any interesting uh, pieces or things to draw from it that uh, might be worth sharing? Uh, no, I, this was a lot of fun. I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to ask these questions uh, precisely because as we read these stories, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on uh, on what resonates with us morally and the characters that we love uh, and the degree to which that reflects the kind of people we want to be. And I think when we role play and we play games like Dungeons and Dragons, we choose alignments because they give us an opportunity to explore these dimensions of who we are and how we want to live in the world. That is really, really well put. So to everybody who is uh, listening to the podcast, thank you so much for listening and we hope you had a good time. I know we did. If you disagree with any of us and think there, or think there's something we left out, especially with regards to the fact that two of us had no idea what Geralt was like, feel free to reach out to us. We'd also really appreciate it if you have any suggestions for characters to talk about on a future episode. This show has been made by We're Not Doing Batman Productions. If you have comments or recommendations, email us at wmdbproductions at gmail.com. That's wacky names, double bassists, productions at gmail.com. Also, we have a Patreon. Please come and support us at WNDB Productions. Thank you so much, and we will see you guys soon. 